welcome to Off The Shelf. This week, my guest is T.C. Emrys. Now, Tegan is a fiction editor, ghostwriter, and self-published author from England. After completing her postgraduate studies in medieval literature, she decided to pursue her love of writing and fiction. Her first short story collection, which you may have heard of, is called The Weight of Rain and was released last year in October 2020. So I'm guessing that would be second lockdown? Uh, oh, um, probably slightly before. Yeah, and then your debut, well, her debut fantasy series is due to be released in 2020. So welcome to the show, Tegan. We had a bit of a segue in the introduction, but thank you so much for agreeing to come on. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really good, thanks. You're very welcome. So you wear many hats, it seems, and you do lots of different <laughs> things, but they all come back to writing. So what made you decide to go from postgraduate medieval literature to writing fiction? Yeah, it's um, it, it's an odd one. So I dropped out of my PhD, um, which is quite a scary sentence. That's very, I was um, say, very brave. Yeah, I mean, I think making that decision felt very natural at the time, but the sentence itself is is pretty terrifying. But um, I've I've always wanted to be a writer ever since I was small. But um, I don't know if you ever had this in school, but when I was in school, everyone would just say to me over and over again, being a writer isn't a career. Being a writer, you need to have another job and then be a writer when you're older. They kept saying, you know, even when I was tiny, that was sort of the the rhetoric that was always pushed to me. Um, so I was encouraged to think about being a teacher or, um, you know, and then by the time I ended up in university, I kind of got this idea in my head that I wanted to be an academic, which, you know, maybe in another life, I could have been an academic um, and, I, and I did my, um, my undergraduate, then I did a master's and then I got three years into a PhD. Um, the pandemic happened um, and it just completely changed my perspective on what was going on with it really and um, started to feel very toxic. I mean, not, not specifically my supervisors, but just the entire process was, it's extremely hard, of course, but um, you know the sort of departmental politics that happen are uh, a lot different to what I expected and so, the, so I thought sorry so you the know, decision to drop out was relatively recent yeah so um it's been about a year and a half I suppose yeah um yeah right at the start of the pandemic so um I think I had been unhappy with it for for a while before that but it was kind of the the final straw and I just sort of sat down and I'd already been doing ghostwriting on the side um I was actually paying my fees while um with running my business and I just thought this is what I love why am I not trying to pursue it I already know a way to to make money with ghostwriting and self-publishing so um yeah I just I took the leap I suppose (laughs) the leap of faith so between you deciding to drop out of your PhD and your short story collection coming out was that not very long I mean did you already have these short stories ready to go or did you write them after you dropped out um so I already had some of them um but a lot of them were written in the summer of, of 2020 ah interesting see I've had a, a couple of guests come on and with all the the lockdowns and the working from home and the big life changes that people have had they tend to fit into two camps either they've been super productive because they have mm. you know no- nothing else to do if they don't have dependents and things like that or they've 
done nothing because you know they they have dependents around them 24 7 they don't have childcare or school or things like that mm. so mm. it's interesting to hear from someone who's been productive <laughs> yeah I suppose in some ways <laughs> um yeah it, it's it's strange really to to think back on um because I'm not <laughs> at the time it didn't feel any different to my sort of normal I mean obviously I, I was already running my business while I was doing my PhD so I was already ghostwriting um and and working from home for that um and my PhD was largely working from home so the the sort of the change that came work-wise wasn't that different but obviously looking back on it it was it was hugely different and and I don't think we uh, we're going to have to digest it for many years to come um you know how how it affected how we think about the world and how we think about work yeah I mean I, I honestly have so many questions to ask you I'm so interested by ghostwriting <laughs> I'm so interested by self-publishing so let's start with the ghostwriting mm. so question number one I have about ghostwriting if you ghostwrite something are you allowed to say you ghostwrote it no so um, industry standard is that ghostwriters sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and that is largely, it's largely for <laughs> like client privacy reasons. Um, I, th I think it's probably helpful for me to explain like who I actually ghostwrite for, because I think when, when I say that I'm a ghostwriter, most people imagine that I'm writing memoirs for like, somebody asked me if I wrote Donald Trump's memoir once. And I was like, no. Um, I mean, I think I, that, I would say if I did write that, I would expect a massive check. <laughs> I think his ghostwriter got very handsomely paid and, but probably still regrets it. But anyway, that's <laughs> keep my political opinions out of this. But, um, yeah, so I think that the like the the general populace of, of you know Western world imagines ghostwriters as writing memoirs, as writing nonfiction for celebrities and that kind of thing. But yeah, that but what I do is is very different to that. I, I'm a fiction ghostwriter, um, and I tend to work for publishing companies, um, small publishing companies, um, not like Penguin and you know that, those kinds of people. Um, who are essentially making money from from self-publishing under lots of different pen names um which which is a very legitimate way to sort of uh create a a publishing company and make and make money from from that so what they'll do is they'll create a pen name um and a marketing strategy for it <clears throat> so for example um at the moment i'm writing a lot of murder mysteries for my clients and they will do it very formulaically, you know, um, read the readers who are, who are reading these murder mysteries are predominantly on Kindle. They want something fairly short, fairly cheap and like a nice, easy read. They follow a lot of tropes um, and they know how to market it that way. And then there will be ghostwritten so that they can sort of churn them out quickly and they make a lot of profit that way. Um, it's it's one way to do fiction. I mean, it's it's certainly not literary, um, but you know the debate is 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 up for you know are those people who are reading for pleasure, you know, the, is their opinion just as valid? Of course, you know. Um, I'm really interested yeah. to know. So obviously, I mean, this is just my opinion. An author really is only as good as their most recent work, or not even their most recent, but their body of work. So as a mm. ghost writer not being able to point at something and say I wrote that how do you get 
I mean, are they, do you have repeat customers? How do you get, uh, you know, new customers? Yeah, is, yeah. is it word of mouth? Because obviously I, long time listeners will know I work in tech law as my day job, so I can completely respect the validity of an NDA, but I'm mm. just curious how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges that um, ghostwriters have, especially when they first start out, but there, there's sort of three things that we do in industry practices, obviously um, testimonials, which are often anonymous, but the people who are looking for fiction ghostwriters are probably aware of the whole situation with NDAs. So, you know, they're, they're more likely to be okay with that. Um, also, you can do that if you're working on like a freelancer type website, um, they can upload their testimonials directly. And so you can see that they have worked with you officially through the website, but it might not come up with their name, if that makes sense. Um, The other thing that's very useful is having sample fiction for all of the genres that you ghostwrite. So um, when I get a new client contact me and they say, uh, uh, like yesterday, I had someone say, what's your fantasy writing like? And I had, you know, a, a sort of 10 page sample ready to go. Um, and just send it and say well this is what my fantasy writing is like and then they can reply and say okay you're right for this or oh you're not right for this Um, and then the third thing is publishing stuff under your own pen names really Um, like like my short story collection but anything that you can point to and be like I I wrote that for myself then people can you know sort of see how the reviews are going or they can um, look at the look inside bit and see a a section of it that kind of thing Um, but yeah it's tricky yeah, that, no, that was my my big question because how do you how do you evidence that you wrote something mm. without you know your your name being on it? So you know, moving on to your short story collection and your debut fantasy series, they're both self published. Yes. And I mean, how? I mean, I I I don't even know how the first step to going about that. So if you could give us like a short summary of how that happened, that would be really interesting. I'm sure for me and my listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um. It's a huge learning curve. I think when I first thought about self-publishing The Weight of Rain, I don't think I had any idea of what went into it at all. But um, essentially, Amazon, um, you know, love them or hate them, they have a free self-publishing platform called um, Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing or Amazon KDP. You often see people calling it. Um, It's completely free to self-publish on there. Um, You are sort of uploading the document and the cover and everything all yourself. So all of the work comes before you actually hit the the publish button. So um, hiring an editor, I've got a wonderful editor called um, Annalie and she worked with me all last year and she'll be working on the next ones hopefully. Um, And then you have to commission a cover designer you need to have a marketing plan, which I mean, I'll be honest, The Weight of Rain was my first one. So I really, <laughs> I really didn't have a marketing plan until after it was already out. Um, and then a formatter, if you're not very good at formatting, which I'm not. Um, so I hired someone to do that in the end. You can do it yourself for free, but um, it was so confusing that I got someone else in. But um, yeah, do you have any like specific questions about what I did? Because I'm just sort of riffing off all the stuff that... <laughs> I remember doing obviously your experience was good enough that you thought I'm going to do this again Hmm. was there what was the I think what was the highlight but what was the what was the bit that you enjoyed more than you thought you would yeah so I think um from talking to friends um I think that 
as a society we really hold traditional publishing as like the end goal um it's it's very lauded and so self-publishing can sometimes have a have a stigma with it um I think that we're, we're all kind of chasing that idea of having your book in Waterstones or whatever um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all but the traditional publishing industry is really difficult to break into and it's it's not just a case of it's it's difficult because you have to be good it's more you have you have to be marketable you have to be sellable um, you have to get an agent first which is already really difficult to to actually find one who'll take you on and then once you've got one they need to be able to shop you to different publishing companies. And after I read up about all of that, I thought, well, I'm going to try self-publishing because it's all in my control to do it. And, and why would I not try? Um, and after I self-published, I actually realized that everything is up to, to me. And in some ways that's tough because, you know, there's a lot of pressure. But in some ways it's it's fantastic because if something doesn't work, I can tweak it. Um and of course, the other thing is that you get 100% of the royalties besides um, Amazon takes uh, 20%, I think, depending on uh, which country you're looking at and that kind of thing. But um, with a traditional publishing, although you've got a far wider reach and you would hope that your book will do well and, you know, um, you, you get a far slimmer amount of the royalties. Um, so it's all about con- having the control of the, of the text, really. Ah, oh, OK. Yeah, I know. I see that. That's interesting. I mean, I have to say you're you're so brave. I'm not sure I would have uh, would have would have had the urge to do it. So your debut fantasy series is coming out next year. Um, mm. Did you know it was going to be a series from when you started writing it? Because that's an, that's another question that I always ask people if they, <laughs> if they write series. It's very easy to write one, but do you write one hoping it will be two or three or four, or do, did you write one and it, you know? someone read it and thought yeah we should do more of these no I think I think right from the first time I started outlining it I knew it was going to be a series um it just it felt like it needed to be like chopped in into three sections does that make sense I don't know if that yeah. makes sense no that makes sense you think the story is you have too many words to do the story justice in one book I understand that yeah and I think um it sort of naturally felt like it was going to split one way or the other. So um, I think it's good to ha- have that in mind. Um, so I'm drafting the the first one um, at the moment, but I think like if you don't outline the entire series, you're, you're never really going to know where it's going. <laughs> and as much as I enjoy free writing, you know, and sort of letting it go where it wants to go, you've really got to know where it's going. Otherwise, you know, if I self-published the first one, the aim is to first uh, self-publish the first one next year, um, and I didn't know where the other ones were going to go, um, then it's kind of a problem, you know? No, I know exactly what you mean. How interesting. Okay, right. So now we'll get on to your actual book phase, because like I said, I could talk about this all day. So the first <laughs> book you've chosen is the first book you remember being read to you. So please tell yeah. us what you've chosen and why. Um, so Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I'm, I'm sure I was read things before, um, you know, children's books and that kind of thing. Um, but I really distinctly remember my dad reading me the first Harry Potter and doing all the different voices. Um, he did a great voice for Hagrid. Um, and it just, I think we ended up reading the first three or four Harry Potters like that when I was, I don't know, probably eight, nine, ten, that kind of age. 
um yeah no I get that and I think parents reading to children is such a lovely thing and I think oh absolutely but the books that your parents read to you and I don't know if you will have children but I assume that you know if either of us were to have children our children will remember the books we read to them and us reading the books to them will be nice for us as well I think it's a really lovely thing when when people read to each other I think it's really important yeah and and I think that my mum's love of books really sort of is is what led me to to loving books so much um and encouraged me throughout school um and yeah she she read all of the Harry Potters before me um and and then I I my dad read them to me but I also read them myself as well um yeah I remember waiting in line for the uh for Half-Blood Prince actually it wasn't the last one for Half-Blood Prince and then we stayed up all night and read the whole thing afterwards yeah I think we're possibly about the same age because I remember being in the latter half of secondary school and one of the books came out and it was such a big big deal and my school had a rule where you couldn't have it you basically you couldn't have it out in class and we read oh really <laughs> yeah they, they took a hard line and I don't blame them because you know obviously we were nerds and we wanted to read it um <laughs> but the second book you've chosen kind of ties into that so you've gone for the book you always remember the first time that you read it so please tell us more yeah so the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton um it's Turton's debut novel and honestly I can't wait to read more from him because it it brilliant um it's it's I kind of describe it as like groundhog day murder mystery um victorian vibes it is wonderful it's you, you really have to read it to to experience it but um i read that in the summer of 2019 during the heat wave um, and I think we got up to like the 30s, uh, you know, in Britain, we just <laughs> we don't do very well with the heat, even though it's nowhere near as hot as, as you know, everyone else's summer. And I just remember like lying in a really cold bath and reading that book for like four hours <laughs> in the bath. I mean, I funny you say that, I was actually having this conversation with my friend the other day. So her boyfriend, when a bath gets cold, he'll let some water out and then put more hot in yeah so you can stay there for ages and ages so did you do that I or love were you like bath. it's cold I need to get out no I I do most of my reading in the bath um I, can I spend... think people that do that are a special kind of insane because the stress <laughs> of dropping the book in the bath would just destroy me you know what I've only ever I've only ever dunked one and it wasn't it didn't even drop it all the way and in all the years I've been reading in the bath um and and it was fine. It actually recovered no problem. So, <laughs> but I think that um, it, it really depends if you're sort of like a bubble bath kind of person as well, because if you have really tall bubbles <laughs> and then your book gets covered in bubbles, it doesn't, it dries all crinkly. Um, <laughs> but I, I tend to have, this is a bit, this is a bit weird now I'm going on a tangent, but I tend to have like books that I keep neat and then books for the bath that I'm happy to have like slightly wet handprints on and that kind of thing <laughs> yeah no that that does make sense and <laughs> okay so the next book you've chosen is the book that everyone should read yeah um now just before you do this I have to say I am possibly the last person on the planet that hasn't read this author he has a much more famous equally famous other book 
which I have on my shelf and I haven't read. So please tell us which book you've chosen and why. So uh, Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. Matt Haig is probably my favourite author. Um, And I could have put him on this list so many times over, but I decided to go for Reasons to Stay Alive because I I think that when I first read it, I didn't realise how much I needed to read it. It's a, it's a non-fiction piece about his struggles with mental health, specifically depression and anxiety. Um, and I think at that time, I probably only had quite mild anxiety. Um, but it just it just completely spoke to me in a way that I, I didn't realise it would. Um, and it also helped me to understand other friends who have sort of more severe anxiety. My, my partner has um some severe anxiety and depression issues and I've had friends who have really severe anxiety that affect their day-to-day lives really quite seriously and I think it really just helped me to understand that um and then you know uh as I've gotten older anxiety has been more present uh, especially since the pandemic and I just I return to it a lot it's it's a great book yeah, like I said, I think I'm the last person on the planet that hasn't read his work. I've got The Midnight Library on my shelf, and I believe that's his first fiction. No, no, no. He's been writing for fiction for... Oh, interesting. So, but is Reasons to Stay Alive a non-fiction? Yeah, so Reasons yeah, to Stay... So he's got Reasons to Stay Alive and Notes on a Nervous Planet are um, two non-fiction books about mental health, but he he's predominantly a fiction writer. I think his first ever fiction book is oh god I can't remember the title something about Mr Cave but uh, he's been writing fiction for a long time but he was actually so this is talking about traditional publishing and self-publishing again so he was actually with a publisher for a long time um, and his books weren't selling that well so they dropped him um, and he kind of became an author without a publisher for quite a while um, and then he was eventually re-picked up with uh, I, I think he's with Penguin or someone now um, and that's why uh, the Midnight Library and the one before that, How to Stop Time, they have had way more marketing than any of his previous books. Um, yeah, the Midnight Library, I actually, I actually finished it last week, and it's not one of my favorite Matt Haig books, but it has had so much publicity and so much hype, uh, and it, it makes me think about marketing and how these publishing companies know what they're doing. You know, they they know that Matt Haig is already popular. They knew that the Midnight Library was marketable. Um, and so they were able to run with it. I'm not saying it's a bad book. It's not a bad book at all. It's just not his best one by far. Um, I think I gave it three stars in the end, which, you know, he's he's my favorite author. So um, I'm, a, I'm already biased. <laughs> but um, yeah, How to Stop Time is my favorite. If you if you want my recommendation, it's um, sort of a it's kind of time travelly but it's not really it's hard it's really hard to describe actually it's it's about um a man who lives an extra long life i suppose that that's all i'll tell you about it it's really good oh interesting yeah like i said i always mean to read him but i just i've never found the time that you know how <laughs> it is too many books not enough time blah blah, blah. absolutely yeah exactly so the next book you've chosen is the book that changed your life. And this is quite an old book. And again, it's a book I'd never heard of, an author I'd never heard mm. of. So let's hope that listeners will either have heard of it and enjoyed it or B will go out and read it. <laughs> so this is The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. And I expect most people haven't, haven't heard of this book. This was actually uh, one that my mum loved when she was younger and sort of passed on to me. So um, the Crystal Cave series um, by Mary Stewart, they're about 
Merlin from Arthur and Legend. Um, and it starts out with him as a small child and it goes all the way through his life and Arthur's life. Um, and this they sort of they made me fall in love with Arthurian literature, which is what I ended up studying. It's what I was doing my PhD in. Um, and it it was actually I read these books and I loved them. And then when I was an undergraduate, I had this wonderful professor who went on to be my PhD supervisor um, years later. And I told her that I loved them and she'd written, um, she, hang on, she had read them when she was younger. Um, and she said to me, why don't you do your dissertation comparing uh, Mary Stewart's books to the actual original medieval texts? And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I could do that. And so I did. And from that book, it was like my gateway into all of these old medieval books about King Arthur. Um, and then I went on, I did my master's in Arthurian medieval literature, and then I did my PhD in um, in the same. So yeah, it really did change my life, even though I you know, eventually decided that academia wasn't for me. Um, it's definitely gonna stay with me forever. Um, and the fantasy series that I'm writing will have some <laughs> Arthurian influences, shall we say. Um, so yeah, it's always going to be a big part of my life and yeah, forever grateful for those books. I think anyone who um, was educated in the UK and then writes mm. fantasy on some level is impacted by Arthurian legends. Absolutely. It's, um, it is a little bit frustrating to me having like studied them because I think that the like the um <laughs> the the conscious idea of king arthur and merlin kind of comes from um the sword in the stone which originally is a book by th white um who was not a good person and and a massive misogynist and a bigot but anyway that's <laughs> again another tangent but that led to the disney film the sword in the stone and i think that like a lot of people get their idea from that and then bbc merlin which is a fantastic series bbc merlin I love it a lot, but it's not very accurate to the medieval stories at all. But um, yeah, I think it's um, it just kind of lives in us as part of our mythological, 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 that's the word, isn't it? Yes. Mythological history. Yeah. No, like I said, I think it's very hard for anyone educated in the UK and writing fantasy not to be inspired. It's just everywhere. So many mm. things are inspired by it and the stories themselves okay, yes, they've changed over time and, you know, the, they've been inflated and deflated and altered and changed and whatever, but mm. the basic premise is something which, you know, a lot of people know a lot about. Mm. So the mm. next book is the book you can relate to most. Now, again, and don't judge me for this, Tegan, but this is another book that I've had on my shelf for ages and I've never <laughs> read. <laughs> um I actually just finished this a couple, like when when I was writing this list for you um a couple of days ago. So this is Olive by Emma Gannon and um I heard about this through um a group that I'm in for um child-free people essentially. Um it's it's a book about somebody realizing that they don't want children and it kind of severing all of their relationships uh kind of it impacts her relationship with her um, long-term partner. It impacts her friendships really severely because um, they're, they're all either trying for children or have children. Um, and yeah, it it's definitely means a lot to me as, as someone who doesn't want to have children. And I think as a, like a young woman in, in this society, it's, it's, um, it's really difficult to be the person who says, I don't want kids. Um, 
and a lot of the phrases and 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 things that some of the characters say to to Olive in the book are just things that I've heard over and over again like you will change your mind you know who will look after you when you're old all these kinds of things and um and Ganon really answers a lot of those thoughts and feelings um and I was really pleased with it I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did it, it's a really um it's a really like well thought through novel um around an idea but with still with plot and character and and you know all the things that because she could have just done a, a non-fiction but she decided to make it this sort of really um intricate life of this woman um yeah it's it's great that's so interesting yeah like i said i i've seen it everywhere on instagram and i, I meant to read it i've actually read her um the multi-hyphenate method i think is her her non-fiction book um right i, I say i read it i listened to it on audiobook um while i was working actually so there's some irony there one thinks um but no <laughs> i i follow her on instagram and i read a lot of her non-fiction output so i have yeah. no reason to think i wouldn't enjoy her fiction output and i'm like you i'm well maybe not exactly like you but um like i said i think we're the same age so children is something which is coming up increasingly often in in my circles um, of friends and it's something which I'm I'm not sold on shall we say yeah and I think that I was really pleased about the novel that it was it didn't lean too hard either way because I think that a lot of people our age are are still questioning like like Olive is in the book she like when we first meet her she's she's not set on on one way or the other um she just knows what she's being told from everyone else which is very much that all of her friends desperately want children and she's not so sure that she does but um a lot of like I don't know if you've ever been in some of the child-free like Facebook groups and that kind of thing sometimes they do get very like oh we hate the breeders or whatever which is just not my philosophy at all because it just what's the point in in hating other people for their life choices just because they're different to you you know um and I think it comes from like it's defensive you know because a lot of the time relatives are the ones who kind of say to us like you should be having kids especially I've been in a long-term relationship now uh, six years um, and we're very happy and we we bought a house together and so of course the next question is like marriage and kids marriage and kids and you get very defensive about it but the novel didn't do that at all it very much it like very fairly represents like the beauty of, of of motherhood for certain people and all the different ways to be a mother as well um like adoption and um being a step parent and um and it's not judgmental about either view and I really I really enjoyed that I think that that would be really helpful for anyone who reads it whether they're like certain that they're child free or whether they're certain that they want kids you know yeah I have to say you're really selling it to me maybe uh, <laughs> you should read it I'm, yeah I'm gonna post my review on Instagram today I think so you can go, <laughs> go and have a look and be like oh yeah yeah how interesting yeah like I said I follow her on Instagram and I read a lot of her non-fiction yeah, yeah writing so maybe maybe I would like it right you've made it to the end now we're on to the oh actually before we get to the um five quick five questions if you had to pick one book of the five you've just chosen as your number one take you to a desert island no other books in your life book which book would you choose oh my goodness ah i'm reliably informed this is the worst question 
it's no it's a wonderful question because I'm imagining myself with each of these books now and it being the only book that I can read I think I think it's either Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle or The Crystal Cape it's probably Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle because it's so long that I probably wouldn't get bored of it but it it's still I mean they're all wonderful so you know um and it, it's so imaginative as well. And I think it's one of these books. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Inception. Yeah, um, I have. Yeah, it's 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 like that in that you have to watch it, read it more than more than once to really get all the details. There's like so many things laced in there that you won't really get until you've read the ending. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Seven Deaths of, of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. Yeah. yeah. That's a great, that's a good, as good a reason as any to pick a book. So <laughs> as I've said, we're now onto the five quick fire questions. Mm-hmm. So question number one, fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking when I was looking at your prompts, I, I mean, I have read some non-fiction, but I just don't, I don't read it in the same way. It's sort of something that I might pick up and dip into a little bit, but I really, I can't think of any non-fiction that I've read cover to cover. Right, fair enough. Excellent answer. So question number two, how many books do you read in a month? Oh, not many. I'm a really slow reader, but in the past couple of months, I've been on a real like reading kick. I think I've probably read about uh, maybe four this month. Well, it's since the middle of August, if you see what I mean. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But normally really slow, probably less than one. <laughs> I have to say I'm very impressed just because it sounds like you write a lot and I find it really hard to write and read at the same time. Obviously not at the same time, but you know what I mean? Spread out. Across yeah. The day. Interesting. I, um, I, th- I think that I couldn't write if I wasn't reading, actually. Um, and a lot of the times that's what I do. So I, I, um, when I ghostwrite, I use the Pomodoro timers. I don't know. Oh, I love those. Yeah. Yeah, they're brilliant. I tend to even use the. Sorry. So, for listeners that are unaware, a Pomodoro timer, I think you can get them in other forms, but um, it's essentially a square with numbers on each side, a bit like a dice, but it's bigger. And you turn it over and it will time you for that amount of time. Um, So, the idea is you don't have to keep looking at your phone to check the timer. And that way you get less distractions. But, yes, sorry, you were saying. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's different to what I've been using. <laughs> no, well, oh. I have to say I bought mine off Amazon, so I imagine there are other ways. But yes, enlighten us. Oh well, um, from my knowledge, the Pomodoro technique is it's essentially um, working in focus time and then taking a break. So you can do like twenty-five and then five-minute break. Or see, uh, it sounds 50. like it sounds like you're an adult and you can moderate yourself, whereas I'm like a toddler and I need like a cube to motivate me so I don't look at my phone well I so I use um YouTube they've they've got YouTube timers oh it's really hard to explain without showing you but like they um they time your focus time and then they time your break as well and I find it's just so much easier not to have to like try and figure it out for myself um yeah yeah Right, so listeners, if you're confused by what we're saying, just Google Pomodoro because <laughs> apparently we are two intelligent people and we're really I'm struggling to this, describe it. <laughs> I'm guessing there's more than one thing. I mean, as far as I was aware, I think Pomodoro was a or is a professor who like researched uh, focused work times and no, stuff. No, you're, that. Yeah, you're right. It is work sprints and then gaps. But that's it. Exactly. I find, I, don't... I find timing myself difficult on my phone, so that's why I use this timer cube. 
cool okay I didn't know about that that's I might have to go and buy one of those now <laughs> but yeah so I use these like ambience pomodoro timers on YouTube I just have it on in, on my laptop like while I'm typing um and so I'll be ghost writing for the focus time and then for the for the breaks I always try and read because I find that otherwise if I don't um I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of crutch words but it, essentially you just end up using the same words over and over again. You don't realize it, especially if you're writing like high volumes of words every day. Um, you don't, you don't realize that you're saying, I don't know, whispered or um, uh, I can't think of another example. No, but, but I, know, you know, I know you mean words that authors use all the time and it's not that, just, they're, yeah. not that the word is wrong. They just use it a lot. And, and it changes every time you write. And, and this is another reason why editing is so important, obviously, but editing your own stuff is, is quite hard, especially you won't, you probably won't notice your crutch words unless you're looking for them. But I, I have noticed that if I don't read regularly when I'm writing, my, like my vocabulary just suddenly starts to just lean on the same words <laughs> over and over again. And it changes all the time. Like one week I might be leaning really heavily on um, sardonically. Sardonically was a, one recently just kept writing. He laughed sardonically. And I'm like, why do I keep writing that? I, <laughs> I mean, that's a very niche word. I was thinking it was basic words like said. No, I mean, it, it's funny. They rarely, it doesn't tend to be like, regular words it tends to be like something that just gets stuck in your head and you you don't even realize that you're using it all the time just because you think like oh that's a good word to use in this situation and before you know it sardonically is like 20 20 times in two pages or so no, it's not that bad but yeah so I what I try to read in between just because I find it helps with that it just helps you maybe it's reading someone else's voice I don't know but it just sort of helps you like get out of that cycle of um <laughs> writing the same words over and over again yep makes complete sense so moving on to the <laughs> next question what's your favorite place to read uh the bar <laughs> yeah yep. again I still think you're insanely reckless but each to their own. <laughs> question number four what's your favorite independent bookshop Oh, um, my partner went to university in Canterbury in Kent. And oh, I wish I could remember. Hang on. I think it might have been called the Chaucer Bookshop. Let me just check before I like. So I'm actually sure. from I, many years ago. I, I was from Canterbury originally. Oh, really? That is everywhere. So I, I would imagine it's called the Chaucer Bookshop. That rings a bell. It is. So, it, yeah, it's called the Chaucer Bookshop. And it's in like this really old building I would probably say 17th century that might be wrong but it's like you know with the beams and a lot of Canterbury is like that is is really pretty um but it's a second hand and like antique bookshop I suppose um and it's, it's amazing I mean I hope it's still still going after the pandemic I haven't been there for a few years but um Jason bought me a, a special edition of um, a HG Wells book from there that's like got gold on the spine and everything. Um, I really need to go back. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. It's great. Yeah, no, it's all old buildings. Everything's named after Chaucer, so I believe that completely. So yeah. <laughs> final question of the whole podcast. Question number five. What is the book you are most looking forward to reading next? Oh, oh, good question. Um, I'm trying to think of my TBR right now. Oh, oh no, this is easy. No, I do know this. Um, the Devil and 
is it called hang on the devil and the the Devil in the Dark Water, that's it. Um, the Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. So it's the same author as um, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which I said I would take with me to a desert island. Um, it's his second novel. Um, I think it came out last year, but it was in hardback for ages and I cannot read hardbacks. I don't know if it's just because I do loads of reading in the bath or what, but I just find them so difficult to like hold and, and read comfortably. So I was waiting for ages for the paperback and it finally came out. So yeah, that one, definitely. Yeah, I, do you know what? I could see that. And I saw, I know the, I know exactly the book you mean. I could picture the cover in my head, the yeah. hardcover cover. Um, and yeah, it was everywhere absolutely everywhere but no it's another one that I haven't read so thank you very much you've made it to the end of the podcast if listeners have enjoyed hearing from you where can they uh, learn more about you learn more about your work follow you um, I think Instagram is probably the best place at tcemeris.writer um, you can find me on my website if you if you like going on websites uh, tcemeris.com um, yeah Yep, that's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great.